0: Welcome everyone, this is Jessica Zhu. I'm an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife and the New Books Network host in Buddhist studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Jing Li from Leiden University in the Netherlands to talk with us about her new book, Comparing Her Phenomenology and Chinese Yogacara in a Multicultural World, A Journey Beyond Orientalism. So welcome Jingjing and very thank you very much for writing this wonderful book. I read it with great pleasure. Um, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional network a uh, new books network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself? How you came to research and write this topic on um, comparative philosophy?
1: Uh, thank you, Jessica, first for your kind words and also for offering me this opportunity to discuss my book. And for sure, my thanks also go to the New Books Network. So uh, Jingjing Li is my name, and currently I work at Leiden University's Institute for Philosophy as a university lecturer, uh, which is the Dutch equivalent of assistant professor, I guess. Uh, I teach and research um, Buddhist and comparative philosophy my interest in comparative philosophy was actually shaped by my own lived experience in montreal canada as a visible minority living in a multicultural society I wanted to explore what it would mean for people like me to engage in philosophy together with those from other communities. And this is where I started to notice that cross-cultural communication is actually not that easy. It is very often the case that people from immigrant societies, for instance, like in the US or Canada, are using the same language, English, for instance, to communicate with one another, but can actually talk about very different things. Since philosophy always takes it as its primary task to clarify concepts, I am wondering what constitutes the life world where language becomes embedded. This is where all the cultural, historical, linguistic factors come into the picture, which eventually leads to my methodological reflections on comparative philosophy as the starting point of my book.
0: Thank you, Jingjing, for sharing your experience with us. I hope that your um, experience and achievements will inspire many more scholars like you to join us in this journey beyond Orientalism. In the prologue of your monograph, uh, you mentioned that in the past, a key hurdle to do comparative study for Hussolian phenomenology and Chinese Yogacara is the problem of essence. Could you please tell us, the listeners, in lay people's terms, um, why some scholars have seen this as a hurdle and how your study and method could overcome it?
1: Yes. Um, As I mentioned earlier, cross-cultural communication can be very tricky, right, when people from across a cultural linguistic divide come to engage one another in a conversation. This is usually where oversimplification and essentialization can happen, further leading to misrepresentation of cultures and traditions. It thus yields a possibility, which is something I myself entertain a lot. Um, When people do not agree with one another from time to time, is it really because they have contradictory views or is it simply because they are talking past one another? If we can elucidate these meta issues, we can surely advance mutual understanding and trust, right, in a multicultural society. That's why I use the problem of essence to encapsulate all these complexities in comparative philosophy. Edmund Husserl, a German, a modern German philosopher, defines phenomenology as the science of essence. Whereas Yogachara Buddhism, a school inside Mahayana Buddhism actually contends that everything is empty of essence because things are constantly changing, right? Things are constantly arising interdependently. There is no such thing as essence. So if this is really the case, right? If this is how Z would understand reality, can we compare their discussion of consciousness and be excited about their similarities on how mental activities work? all the while just being silent on how they view reality, at least on the surface level, differently. I do think we should go further, especially considering how the critique of essence has been at the center of this crucial movement called the critical Buddhism. This movement rose to prominence in Japan during the 1980s. At that time, scholars in this movement, critical Buddhism, right, discerned how a very popular Buddhist viewpoint, specifically in East Asia, affirms an innate quality of awakening as the essence impartially in all sentient beings, and thus brings in an essentialism that contradicts the authentic Buddhist understanding of no self and emptiness. Their concern about authenticity right, comes with a deeper worry about whether such popular understanding in East Asia can hinder the larger pursuit of justice in the combat against discrimination. I myself very much appreciate their concern insofar as power does come into play in cross cultural communications. Sometimes misrepresentation happens not because people don't know they are oversimplifying the situation, but rather because such oversimplification can very well work towards their favor. This is very much the case for various types of orientalist discourses. Hence, I find it even more crucial to tackle the problem of essence, not just for deepening our philosophical understanding of this concept essence, Not just this concept concept perceived, right, but also its conceptual and linguistic history in various uh, traditions, but also for clarifying how people perceive reality differently throughout history, but can still find a common ground to meet in the middle on an equal footing.
0: Thank you, Jingjing, for your lucid unpacking of this term for the uninitiated people like me. So your book has uh, 12 chapters and we only have about 15 minutes. I have to be very selective as a host. Instead of going through chapter by chapter, um, I want to select some important themes in each of the four parts. Part one is the journey. Part two is the road. Part three is the tracks. And part four is the destination. So let me start with part one. In part one, chapter one, you propose that uh, to go beyond Orientalism, we must rely on multiculturalism, especially the both and approach. To help listeners appreciate this tricky issue, could you please first tell us what is Orientalism? Why it is dangerous and harmful? Um, I already, um, I'm thinking about the uh, oversimplification that worked to um, either serve a certain group of people's interests or um, to buttress the status quo. Uh, But Then the question is, how would the both-end approach help us go beyond these harmful limitations of Orientalism?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, I think I have already touched upon this big concept, right, Orientalism already. So briefly speaking, Orientalism is a colonial discourse in which Euro-American colonizers bifurcated the world into a rational West and a non-rational East. And based on this East-West dichotomy, right, these colonizers all the way back to the 19th or even earlier, right, late 18th century, continued to glorify their colonization as their way of helping the East rationalize, modernize, and progress. This is where we can see the point I made earlier about power, right, especially how power plays a role here. The East has been both highlighted as the other and silenced, right? Both highlighted and silenced as being inferior. So what choice would people have in the West? Uh in the East, right? Uh they actually didn't have much. Uh people in the East were expected to assimilate themselves a lot of comparative studies in this period, especially in the late 19th century, were taunting this narrative. Uh, In my book, I selected Max Müller, a very eminent uh, scholar of comparative religion based in the UK back in the days, as an exponent. But even the Orientalist discourse itself is not a static entity. Actually, it uh, continued to develop uh, since the 20th century. Uh, That's why we start to see a second development. Uh, For instance, DT Suzuki, as well as many of his contemporaries at that time, championed this new development. What they have done is that they keep the East West economy but argue for the superiority of the Eastern now rationality uh, Victor Hori refers to this reverse Orientalism as a way of reflecting uh, the, discor- the colonial discourse. And this reverse Orientalism, as scrutinized by many scholars like Robert Scharf and Brian Victoria, also played a crucial role politically, right, in Japanese nationalism, especially during the 1930s. So this is the sort of contextualization that I think really matters for philosophers, because contextualizing these philosophical ideas in their historical climate usually help us see more, right? Especially how ideas do not exist in the vacuum, but rather can become a political discourse at the time. Misrepresentations in these contexts do not take on just one form, Being close-minded is for sure problematic, but being blind to difference is also problematic. They're problematic because of how they perpetuate domination in various ways. In my view, a multicultural society, I put the emphasis on the multi-part, should really strive to end such domination and homogenization. That said, however, I'm fully mindful of various critiques on multiculturalism, especially how certain forms of multiculturalism are not really geared towards ending operation. Hence, when I envision multiculturalism as a remedy of Orientalism, I also hope to expand our understanding of multiculturalism as well. Eventually, it all boils down to what are the constructive changes we shall make upon being mindful of various critiques. I guess three aspects are worth considering, uh, which I refer to as uh, discursive redistribution, equal recognition, and diverse representation. Uh, These three aspects underpin what I refer to as the both and approach. Uh, It requires comparative scholars to appreciate both the distinctiveness of each tradition in its own cultural and linguistic context first for exploring their middle ground, and right, their interconnectedness on the broader horizon for conversations and collaborations. As such, I hope comparative philosophy can assist people in finding a language from their own background to represent themselves and communicate their needs with others on the equal footing. It is a multicultural society that appreciates um, what has uh, what is known as this sort of non-dominant difference.
0: Thank you, Jingjing. This is very helpful. I just want to prime the listeners. Um several key you just touched upon so many um very contested issues, orientalism, different ways of doing comparative study and multiculturalism. I want to prime the listeners that when you talk about it's important that ideas do not come out of the vacuum. So it's important to contextualize the ideas. And I just want to uh, mention that in contemporary uh, ways of doing philosophy, there are two camps, largely. Broadly speaking, one is the contextualization camp, I think you are in, but there are also a main camp that is decontextualization, meaning that we want to abstract ideas from other traditions. And then that's a way to engage in um, uh, cross-cultural um, conversations. I just want to uh, listeners to pay attention to this debate and then to see Jingjing's intervention of both and, and approach. Um, and I personally find this kind of approach of um, doing comparison and uh, engaging in multicultural uh, examination is um, is helpful because it shows us that difference is enriching and life giving, and that's what makes us um, kind of multicultural world more attractive. Um, so let me move to the end of the chapter two, contextualizing Chinese yoga chakra. Um, you actually articulated your method more in-depth, that there are three levels of analysis. you call it descriptive, explicative, and prescriptive that guides your comparative work throughout the book. So to help listeners understand um, this a little bit, um, just um, maybe... um, Explain to us uh, very briefly, how do they relate to the both end approach in doing a multicultural uh, comparative work? And, um, you know, you don't have to explain it. I know this is the guidance of your whole book. So just say in very brief terms, and and then we will have time to elaborate each one as we go through the next three parts of your monograph.
1: Sure. Um, So for Yugacharians, right, they are Buddhist. So those three levels are what they would call, um, for instance, in um, classical Chinese, uh, um, which would if we can translate that into English, would be the teaching of consciousness, so how consciousness works, uh, how mental activities work, and then afterwards, the second level is the principle of emptiness, basically, we have this activity of consciousness, so If, on the basis of this understanding, how can we come to see reality as it is? And then the last part is uh, the path, right? The bodhisattvas path, which means that so now we know how consciousness works, which allows us to see the world as it is. So, what we should do? Uh, Interestingly, uh, there are also parallels in Husserl's phenomenology, because for Husserl, these three levels also outlined how he gradually develops his phenomenology from first as a descriptive science of our experience to transcendental phenomenology and eventually to an ethical renewal of European life. Um, But... In describing those three levels, I particularly eschew the standard language of epistemological, metaphysical, and ethical, but try to locate the specific vocabularies used by our protagonists to show the parallels in their uh, philosophical thinking, all the while showcasing their differences that eventually lead to their divergence when it comes to how um, philosophy tra- should translate into action. So I think this is a very crucial part, right? Do not presume that there is a set of language we can use universally, but try to locate specific vocabularies used by those thinkers themselves. And then afterwards, try to see if we can discern parallels and differences. So in each part, uh, I always position uh, their philosophical thoughts in their respective contexts first to delineate how they develop their own thoughts together with their own interlocutors before bringing them together for revisiting a philosophical question. Uh, in this way, a comparative study of these two traditions also mirrors the entire intellectual universe of their respective cultures and also all the other Cultures that once contributed to their viewpoints.
0: Thank you, Jingjing. I really appreciate your explanation and and, uh, really appreciate the work you've done in contextualizing those ideas and translating them. So, to bring those uh, two drastically different um, philosophical systems into conversation, that kind of translation is not just like a host to target language translation, just like so much careful articulations, tracing of the threads going on behind the scenes. In part two, you segue into the descriptive aspect of both Husserl's phenomenology and Yogacara. And you spent three chapters on one thing only, intentionality. Um, Could you please highlight for the listeners how your comparative study of the descriptive level of both traditions in terms of non-conceptuality and intentionality throw into relief the shared ground, the common ground, and at the same time also uh, highlights the diversity of viewpoints?
1: Yes. Um, So I think let's rewind a little bit, right? So as I said earlier, when I use the term descriptive uh, to capture this level of their philosophical thinking, what I try to present is how the uh, examine mental activity, how they describe consciousness, in order to uh, explore how we come to acquire knowledge. So this is what we are talking about now. And I would actually, I would actually like to start with the concept of non-conceptuality first, and then gradually moving on towards the concept of intentionality. So we're going to reverse uh, the orders a little bit uh, today when people start to hear about terms like you know conceptuality versus non-conceptuality it might just strike people as you know the good old dichotomy between science and mysticism right so you think about something that is conceptual and then uh, it is usually associated with many other uh, attributes, right? Okay, it is conceptual, and it is scientific, it is rational. Non-conceptual, whoa, that has to be something that is ineffable and mystic. Yeah. Uh, this mm-hmm. common and also popular view, right? Uh, also, I hope listeners can feel this already. Um it also has a deep Orientalist root, isn't it? Insofar as it tap, type, uh, it typecasts science as the project of rationality that thrives on objectification and empirical observation, all the way in contrast to, to mysticism, right? As anything beyond our regular, everyday commonsensical comprehension, and this science mysticism. Um, bifurcation is further imposed on the West and the East, right? It probably can explain why people would usually hope to get some mystic wisdom uh, from Buddhism. Uh, if this is why you're listening to this, I have to say I'm sorry, because that is uh, that probably wouldn't be the case. Um, so, How about intentionality? I just explained a common understanding of conceptuality versus non-conceptuality, right? It was a very uh, clear-cut differentiation. So what is conceptual is rational and scientific. What is non-conceptual is mystic, ineffable, right? Uh, How does this... become tied to the entire discussion of intentionality. Okay, so this is a story, right? Uh, The role played by intentionality here is about how intentionality defines consciousness as something with a framework. So uh, don't get intimidated by this big term intentionality. So intentionality just means that consciousness has a certain feature. And what is this feature? This feature just shows consciousness has a framework or a structure. Uh, so that that's why usually philosophers would say that intentionality is aboutness or directness uh, of a mental act. So let's unpack this further, right? So what is intentionality? Uh, Why a lot of philosophers would say, oh, intentionality is aboutness or directness. Uh, Husserl, Edmund Husserl, he once said that uh, consciousness is consciousness of something. So it just shows that every mental act, right, comes with this sort of structure. So every mental act is about something and is always directed at something. So that is to say perceiving, right? It's not just perceiving whatsoever. It's always a perceiving of something. Recollecting is not just recollecting whatsoever. It's always a recollecting of something. Now, if we can further specify, and this is the moment we start to see what this structure really is. Uh, for instance, my perception of my cat sleeping on the sofa, right, think about this mental episode. Is very different from my recollection of my cat sleeping on the sofa what is the difference here? The difference here consists in the quality of the act, right? The act of perceiving, the act of recollecting. But it could also be another type of difference. For instance, my perception of my cat sleeping on the sofa is very different from my perception of my cat fighting with my neighbor's cat, right? Uh, So what is (laughs) the difference here? I am perceiving the act is the same, right? But what I am looking at is different so this is where philosophers gonna say well the content of our perception is different so following this line of reasoning to have consciousness of something means to be conscious of but to be conscious of means that whenever we start to enact a mental act right like perceiving recollecting we also start to have this sort of structure uh that is defined by the objectification of content, a subject-object dichotomy, right? Recall our earlier definition of conceptuality, right? What is conceptual is rational, but what is rational, it's something we can observe, examine, right? Or even do experiment upon, right? So we can see that explicitly consciousness, if we define consciousness in terms of intentionality, right? As the sort of subject-object dichotomy or Objectification of content. And for sure, every explicit consciousness is conceptual. Uh, Nevertheless, I think this is something that's quite nice about um, the human mentality, is that once we start to define consciousness in this way, it is almost inevitable that we start to entertain another possibility, right? So if it's really the case that explicit consciousness is conceptual, now. Can we actually experience something without such duality? Can we do that? Right? Is it possible that um, I am perceiving certain things without such object- objectification? Can we do that? Uh, usually we would probably say, no, we couldn't, right? In order no, to... No,
0: I think I do. We do. We all have the flow state, right? That's why uh, um, right.
1: some no no exactly that's why um for those moments right you probably mm-hmm. uh, would hear it from many philosophers or you probably have already heard it from other philosophers is that those moments are really like um mystical <laughs> experiences right like y- you are not your mind is not there you're just doing it right and then when they kind of start to uh, describe those experiences in this way, they're gonna say, oh, that's the sort of mystic ex- experience. You don't even know how it happens, but it just happened. Uh, I find this this sort of dichotomy very interesting because uh, there is actually an unquestioned presumption here. Uh, what is this unquestioned presumption? Is uh, how we come to define intentionality and the conceptuality, right? Um, As we said earlier, now there is this sort of uh, science um, mysticism bifurcation, but we need to presume certain things in order to have this bifurcation. So what is this unquestioned presumption we have already inserted here? This unquestioned presumption is that we can have this sort of bifurcation when and only when we presume a mental act as something that is static. Right, as a finished product. Uh, Think about how we come to describe different kinds of mental act. I said, I perceive my cat sleeping on the sofa. What am I describing? This is already all accomplished, finalized the mental episode, right? I never question how it came into being, I never question about the genesis of this mental episode. I just take it as it is, right? But maybe our experience is more nuanced than that, is more profound than that. What if intentionality is not this sort of static structure? What if intentionality is more dynamic, more fluid, more lucid, right? As a process where subject and object, albeit different, come to mutually constitute one another and thus cannot be separated from one another right. Um, if we think about a lot of uh, habitual uh, actions we are performing, right, uh, is it really the case that those kind of actions just happen to us, those kind of experience just happen to us? Um, no, we're still agents, right? We just don't overthink. It's a very fluid process. And this sort of fluid, the mutual constitution, uh, interestingly, has been highlighted by our protagonists uh, in this book, both by Husserl and the Chinese yogatarians. Uh, so for Husserl, uh, he discusses this in the section on passive synthesis. We start to have those passive synthesis, for instance, when we come to think about uh, cultural conditioning, right? How our culture uh, conditions the ways in which we perceive and navigate life. And for Yogacharians, they very nicely capture this uh, in their description of the fourfold structure of consciousness. And uh, instead of going into the details, right, uh, the very technical discussion uh, provided by Husserl and Yogacharians, uh, I wouldn't go there. But what I Want to highlight here is that this sort of dynamic and generative view of intentionality actually opens a new perspective beyond this sort of science, mysticism, bifurcation, because it shows how our experience is embedded. Uh, instead of thinking about our experience as some sort of representation of a static structure, right? it actually tries to encourage us to think about our experience more lucidly as something that is, I shouldn't say something, uh, as uh, a uh, a dynamic process that is embedded in a larger life world we share with others throughout history. Uh, I think Buddhists probably would say throughout cosmic (laughs) history, right? So instead of having to choose between science and mysticism, we can enrich our understanding of lived reality both at the personal and interpersonal levels. I think that is actually their shared insight at the descriptive level.
0: Wow, thank you, Jingjing. So for, for your explanation, so let me just tell you what I think I heard. I think what I heard is that um, in the typical popular understanding of science and rationality, there's embedded unsaid hidden philosophical assumptions. That's ontology that assumes everything is structured, is static. Um, there are category, universal categories that define, but it sounds like um phenomenology and Buddhism in general, particularly Chinese Yogacara, is very much like process philosophy, where you take the fundamental level of analysis, like um, the processes that give rise to certain recurring patterns, like intentionality, like certain concepts. And then, so if you refuse to think about the world as building blocks, but in terms of thinking of um, the world as intersecting, interweaving processes, then you get a totally different um, perspective of how, where we are, you know, what makes us human and what our relations to other people and other species and, you know, the planet. And I guess that's the common ground. Like they all focus on the processes, the dynamics, instead of what is the asking questions, like what is the definition of this? What are the building blocks of that, right? And, um, and their differences, I guess, must lie into their particular details of how they think the process of conscious actually work. Um, So I just find this comparative study very informative and effective in dismantling this kind of a contemporary Orientalist discourses in popular culture on the political level, such as the clash of civilizations that's first propagated by the Harvard professor Samuel P. Huntington uh, in 1993, but it still reigns supreme today in many cultural circles. Also, there's this uh, parallel concept of incommensurability in academia that stems. Um, any kind of comparison fundamentally flawed, therefore unworthy to pursue further just because like, um, we are all different. East, West are different. We have uh, different philosophical assumptions. There's no point to comparison. But anyways, I just find uh, the way you compare Hussou and Chinese Yuga very fruitful. In part two, you moved on to explicative level of Husserl's phenomenology and Chinese Yogacara. Here, you mentioned that you used the term explicative to replace the term metaphysics. Another term for it might be ontology, partly to avoid Eurocentric gaze inherent in the term itself. Could you please explain to the listeners what sort of analytic work this new term, explicative, do in the book? And then how does it help you to reveal their, uh, the shared commitment of what you term a correlative non-dualism in both philosophical systems?
1: Uh, sure. I would also like to recap a little bit. Thank you for the remark uh, on process philosophy. I would also... Uh alert our readers that uh, process philosophy is also a very broad field, right? Uh, for instance, if we're only looking at Whitehead's uh, process philosophy, I'm pretty sure that White- Whitehead actually has his own um, metaphysical theories. Um, sometimes one uh, major worry people would have about this sort of process understanding is um, of reality is really that uh if there is only a uh, process and then uh, are there knots right in this process uh, so i should say two things uh before we move on this uh first to do keep in mind that our earlier discussion uh was mainly about the descriptive level right so how to understand the mental activity and uh, which can allow us to comprehend the knowledge acquisition and second is that um, uh do not we're gonna talk about this more now when we move on to the explicative level is really that to say that uh, they focus on the fluid process doesn't mean that they would reduce uh, subjectivity, objectivity to nothingness. Uh, No, I think very clearly in both uh, Hus- uh, in both uh, Yogacara uh, thought, or even more so in Husserl's work, is that they are not saying that subject object, they just disappear in this process. No, what they are saying is that they mutually constitute one another, right? Like to think about this sort of mutual relationship, right? To have a mutual relationship, we do need a two parts. But the, the point here is whether we should treat those two parts as mutually exclusive or we should treat those two parts as um, mutually generating, uh, mutually interpenetrating, and mutually uh, interdependent, uh, Interdependent, right? Uh, so I think it's very well the latter. And then I think um, after clarifying those two points, we can move on to the second level. Uh, so yes, I have also been thinking about Huntington's theory a lot, and I always feel that the clash of civilizations is... Uh, actually just one half of the story, right? The other half is furnished by Francis Fukuyama in his um, signature talk of the end of history, right? So think about how the two halves can eventually give us the whole story, right? The whole story is really that, you know what? In time of globalization, when cultures start to communicate, for sure civilizations will clash when they come to interact and... What will happen right? as the outcome of this clash? Uh, for sure, only one will thrive as the end of human history. Right? Um, I don't know how optimistic I shall be here, but I have to pinpoint another... Um, sorry, I have to pinpoint first this very... this underlying, very Hegelian view of historical teleology here. Uh, However, as many multicultural feminists have highlighted, we can only envision a clash of civilization when we end, right, the second half of a story, uh, the end of history, when we view cultures and the civilizations as unchanging, self-closed entities. But that's not reality, right? Cultures do change, and they always change together with one another. Otherwise, right, if cultures wouldn't change, and then higher education would still be an elite product for a very selected few, and women like us wouldn't even have access to higher education if cultures wouldn't change, right? For sure, cultures change. And I also understand how change can bring in a lot of uncertainties, which make people uncomfortable. So part of my job, I hope, is to provide people with new vocabularies to communicate with one another uh, and incentivize those who feel more reluctant to change. So the term correlative non-dualism is one of those new vocabularies. Uh, we do have various types of dualism, interestingly, right, in your American philosophy, like Cartesian dualism or mind-body dualism, but there are all kind of like variations of Cartesian dualism. But when it comes to non-dualism, we don't seem to delineate the specifics, right? So non-dualism, what is it? Are there different types of non-dualism, right? I think that's something we don't discuss a lot, at least in uh, your American philosophy. Uh, so I think now halfway into our interview, uh, I can clarify a little bit the meaning of Yuga Chara. <laughs> so, uh, this is probably a very um, foreign or odd term for a lot of listeners. So yugachara is a Sanskrit compound that comes with two parts, Yuga and and akara. right? Uh, yuga, I'm sure a lot of you wouldn't find it very unfamiliar, but the meaning of yoga, right? what is the literal meaning of yoga? Yoga means to connect, to resonate, and to correlate. And akara means to act and interact, or like I would say to act, to enact, and to interact. Um, so altogether, yugachara actually means to act and interact in the world together with others in the world in this connecting, resonating, and correlating manner uh, through our mental activity, right? So this is where we do say that subjectivity does play a part, but subjectivity is not this sort of self-enclosed absolute, right? And this is what I refer. uh, This is why I refer to this dynamic fluid worldview as correlative non-dualism that is shared by Husserl and Yogacharians as such for Husserl, essence is a concept that explains how things actually are but essence doesn't actually amount to a sort of absolute idea essence for husserl is also not a self-determined entity uh, rather for husserl essence just shows that we just cannot take a hardcore scientific approach when we come when we want to understand human experience we cannot reduce human consciousness and human experience to the sort of empirical psychological activity or psychological data that can be measured. There is something that just cannot be reduced. And what is it? And that is the mutual constitution we are always doing together with others in this world. And for Yugoslavia, their critique of essence also doesn't lead to a sort of annihilationism. Rather, it shows how for Yogacarians, subject and object, uh, the quality of the act and the content of the act, the self and the other, all of them are interdependent. And I think this is where we start to see um, how Husserl enriches the Euro American understanding of SS beyond Cartesian dualism and how Yogacara Buddhists especially Chinese Yagacharians, ensure a middle way between essentialism and annihilationism. So eventually this is also where we start to see how the problem of essence can be resolved because we start to think about the meta, all the meta issues here, right? And then why I call this the explicative level instead of just using terms like metaphysics and ontology is I think first and foremost, those terms, metaphysics and ontology, they also come—they uh, also come with their own linguistic and philosophical uh, history. Very interestingly, if we're talking about metaphysics, for instance, in medieval theology, uh, very often we would be—we would find ourselves uh, in the discussions and the conversations over existence. But if we're talking about metaphysics, for instance, in the more modern context, probably we're going to connect to metaphysics, not so much with existence, but more with knowledge. Uh, so that's why I think those terms, per se, are already complicated enough. But, so, but instead of trying to entrap myself in those terms, and the philosophical tradition where they develop, I actually try to think about what are the questions uh, Husserl and Chinese Yogacharians are answering here? And those questions are really about uh, how things actually are from our perspective. Uh, Once I start to see um, their philosophical thinking in this manner, I actually find it unnecessary to evoke large concepts like metaphysics or ontology. I think explicative can very well do the job.
0: Thank you very much. So um, just to recap, correlative non-dualism, the sense you want to convey is actually in both Hussolian phenomenology and Chinese Yogacara, the conscious processes, how we perceive the world, uh, actually conceived as, uh, understood as a mutually constitutive means ourselves and the world, the world including other things and other beings, right? Uh, interdependent so it's a so uh, so in that sense interdependence actually is one of the core concepts under correlative non-dualism and that actually does that actually does change our perspective drastically because if I and you are mutually dependent um, then that helps me to think about our conversation in a totally new light so thank you very much but then um now we are finally reaching part four, the prescriptive, prescriptive level of analysis in both traditions. Here on page 151, you argue that correlative non-dualism shows us principles and possibilities of collaborative actions that, here I quote, not only enable a person to re but also allow a society to reform and transform, unquote. So more importantly for you, uh, both Herso and Chinese Yucatarians offer their own prescriptive level of analysis on how shall we act, both as a person and as a society. Could you please help uh, the listeners understand both the content of your argument and its consequences? I'm asking this because um, probably my uncomfortable feelings about like in way into um, activism, because when we start talking about the question of how shall we act, right? We are seemingly out of the value neutral zone, which is supposedly the scholars kind of first comfort zone, now into the zone of activism. So what's your take on this?
1: Uh, first and foremost, I think value neutrality is a problematic term <laughs> because, uh, as um, a very well-known psychology who ha- a psychologist uh, who has also done a lot of uh, a lot of work in feminist theory, Patricia Hill Collins once she said, "Not having a position is a position. Uh, neutrality is also a position, <laughs> right?" Uh, so, um, turning back to the last part. As we just discussed, I think Foucault's correlative non-dualism shows how and why uh, European science encounters a crisis of meaning because of its inherent reductionism. Uh, That's why sometimes uh, people would also refer to this sort of reductionism, sometimes right, as scientific naturalism. Uh, But I do think more specification uh, should be made here. So I will just stick to the term reductionism. Uh, So such reduction makes people ignorant of the correlation, right? Further pronouncing the crisis of meaning as an existential crisis. And this is where we start to see how the analysis of consciousness in Husserl's work is not value neutral. Because every life world... For instance, the life world of uh, Europe uh, of Europeans, right, which is what Husserl says, this sort of entire uh, European life world is imbued with various types of power dynamics on the horizontal level, right? Uh, what Husserl doesn't further elaborate upon is how crisis and its remedy are also interconnected because as Buddhists, right, would like to say, we are the... Uh, we're going to bring Buddhist metaphor here, we are the silkworms entrapped in our own cocoons. And thus, only we can work together to break through those cocoons, right? Uh, That's why I hope where phenomenology can learn from Buddhists regarding how we can transform lived reality to end domination and oppression after criticizing these injustices. This is what I hope phenomenology can learn from Buddhism. Uh, Husserl does talk about, for instance, uh, the project of communal renewal. And when he was talking about communal renewal, uh, he also... um, Tried to outline, for instance, how a community leader should guide others in this entire enterprise, right uh, of what he called communal renewal, but he hasn't provided us further with further details. Um, So this is the point, right? Like now we know something has gone wrong, which is what Husserl would call, right, in his time, this crisis of meaning, right, as a crisis of European science. So now we know the problem. What we should do? Um, Also, to put it differently, now we know, right, this is what we can critique, but after the critique, is there anything uh, constitutive we can do? Um, In Buddhism, there are more resources on what this sort of transformation, right, uh, transformation of society can be, and how a uh, a community leader uh, should act. Um, I also have to confess that I haven't actually fully outlined uh, the strategic uh, aspect, right, or the more concrete strategies to be used by community uh, leader in the current book. Uh, but that's something I'm working on right now.
0: Thank you, Jingjing. That's just really very helpful because once you start to see the world and or each other as interdependent um and co-constitutive that really compels you to think about um, how you act in the world in a different way. And you, I think you are spot on in talking about how value-neutral is itself is a social construct and it's all uh, constituted by a certain process of power plays, right? Um, and that's something to think about. And uh, I just want to uh, prime the listeners that uh, even for her soul, that's something you don't really hear in the philosophy class is that he's not just sitting there trying to work out uh, the intellectual puzzle of how consciousness processes work and how do we break it, how do we do the apple cake. It's not just institution, in, in, intellectual exercise for him, he actually has an aim that is deal with the scientific uh, crisis of science and um, think about communal renewal. So, Jingjing, we've taken a lot of your time already. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss, but um, you'd like to highlight for the listeners and future readers, hopefully?
1: Right. Um, I'm afraid I didn't even say that in my book, but I really want to use this opportunity to say it. Uh, I will also borrow um, a metaphor from Buddhism. Uh, So Buddhists always like to say that um, use the finger to point to the moon. But do not confuse the finger with the moon okay i shall repeat this use the finger to point to the moon but do not confuse the finger with the moon uh, my book is definitely not the moon <laughs> so be very careful my book is not the moon but i hope that it can be a finger for for readers to think about several issues from a different perspective uh so that Uh, readers can actually start their own journey, right? Um, As the pursuit of the moon in a way, I describe the structure of my book metaphorically as a journey that has several parts right so readers might not find all the answers they wish to get in this book throughout this particular journey Uh, but hopefully after reading this book you will also be incentivized um, to start your own journey and in that case this book will just be a starting point like the finger right
0: Thank you, Jingjing. Jing. Um, before we part our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional new books network question. That is, um, what keeps you busy? What are you working on right now?
1: I think I have touched upon this a little bit earlier already so uh, currently I want to outline more how transformation of one shared worldview in one lived reality uh, happens through a collaborative effort Uh, in particular right what qualifies someone as a community leader and what are the skillful means this leader can use to challenge engage and incentivize others in the joint combat against domination here I narrow down my scope to the domination and specifically really related to gendered and sexualized bodies. Uh, if my previous book is about how to live in a multicultural society as a visible minority, and my current project is how to improve justice in this society through ending domination and oppression as a woman of color. Uh, in this way, I also want to bring a sense of hope. <laughs> so to. Dedicate oneself to activism can be very exhausting as well, especially when people from the marginalized groups constantly call for change, but the dominant group just refuse to listen. Right. So this is actually super frustrating. Right. So uh, can we find concrete examples that can serve as the inspirations for activists? Uh, I am looking. Um, I am currently looking at overlooked Yuga Chara resources to find those inspirations.
0: Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to read your next book or whatever you conceive it um, in articles, in books. But thank you again for writing this wonderful book and for sharing with us many thought-provoking insights. Um, So I wish you good luck in your future adventures and please do produce your book as fast as you can.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your time too.